0: Guys, church, you can go and grab your Bibles this morning and open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And let's go to the Lord again for a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we just want to affirm again as your people that you are a great God and you are our God, and you're our God because you've made us your people. Through Christ you have adopted us, through Christ you have redeemed us, through Christ you have rescued us. And Father, our prayer is as we come to these closing verses of Ecclesiastes that we'd be reminded of who you are and we'd be reminded of who we are in light of who you are. And so God, we ask for your help now as we turn our attention to your holy word and we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Again church, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And uh, Lord willing, this is going to be our last week in this study going through this great book together. And most of Ecclesiastes has been solemn in describing what it's like if you live your life like this world is all there is. I'm going to say that one more time. Most of this book has been solemn in describing what it is like to live your life as if this world is all there is. In other words, what, what if you live like all there is is this material world? What if you live like all there is is this world that you can see and taste and touch with your hands? What if that's all there is to life? The phrase that Solomon has consistently used has been the phrase under the sun. Over and over, Solomon has described what it's like to live as if all we have is this under the sun existence. What if all there is is this life in this physical world? It's what John Lennon was describing in his, son, in his song Imagine. you remember the lyrics to that song? It said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. John Lennon imagined that that would be the utopia. If you could just convince people that all there is is this world, there's no heaven above, there's no hell below, it's just this world and this moment that that's all you have, that would be the perfect life. Well, Solomon didn't just sing that, Solomon lived that. For a big portion of his life, Solomon lived as if this world is all there is. And he was uniquely positioned to do that because he was the king of Israel. So Solomon had unlimited resources, he had unlimited power, he had tremendous time. And so Solomon was able to try out everything this world offers. He tried wine, he spent a portion living the party lifestyle, He tried women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He tried work. Solomon was successful. He built cities and he built palaces and he built Israel into this great trade power. He tried wealth. Solomon had more money than a person could spend in a hundred lifetimes. So in a very real sense, Solomon tried every path that the world offers. And what's his conclusion to it all? Do you remember His conclusion is, it is all, the word he likes to repeat, it is all vanity. Meaning, if you live your life like this world is all there is, then it's empty. If you live your life like all you have is this physical universe, none of it matters. There's no ultimate purpose to any of it. You'll live a wasted life. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? That there's something in our fallen hearts that thinks we could be different than Solomon. Man, if I had that kind of money, if I had those kind of women, if I had that kind of success, I'd be satisfied, we think. And so off we run. It's like going to a, a, a dog track where you have all these greyhounds lined up in the chutes to start a race and a big mechanical arm comes swinging by and at the end of that mechanical arm is the rabbit that they use and they open the chutes and the dogs see that rabbit and they take off running with every fiber of their being trying to catch this rabbit as it goes around the track and then the race ends and the arm start stops moving and the dogs are able to catch up to this rabbit that they've been chasing and of course they realize it's not a real rabbit at all it's this stuffed bunny it's not even real well that's sort of how Solomon is describing the way our lives can go We can live our lives giving all of our attention and and expending all of our energy, chasing after everything this world offers, and if you actually get to it, you'll only discover in the end that it's not real. None of it matters. Because you and I were made for something more than this temporary world. The way Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is that God has set eternity in our hearts. We weren't just made for the material. We were made for the eternal. We were made for God. That's the message of this book. And as we come to the end today, Solomon's going to bring all of this now to a conclusion. And and, and it's really not a conclusion as much as it is an epilogue. So it's like like Solomon has finished the book, and now in these last six verses, he's going to circle back around to try to help us understand how the book was written to try to help us understand how we should approach this book. And then the last two verses, he gives one final blurb to sum up everything he's been, he's been driving toward in this letter. If, if you're looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize from Ecclesiastes, there's no better passage than the last two verses of chapter 12. Okay, So let's read these last six verses together, and then we'll dive into it. We're in Ecclesiastes 12. We're starting in verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 14. Solomon writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'm going to try to sum up these last three verses under, under under these last six verses under three main headings. Number one, Solomon talks about the writing of Ecclesiastes. So what's happening in verses nine and ten is Solomon is giving us some insight into how this book was put together. So look at how he starts it in verse nine. Solomon says, and moreover, because the preacher and you'll remember that the preacher is a reference to Solomon, that's who he is, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Now keep in mind, Solomon had unparalleled wisdom as a gift from God. And so according to the verse nine, what did Solomon want to do with that wisdom? Well, Solomon says that he still taught, or your translation might word it, he taught continually. It's like as Solomon came to the end of his life, more than anything else, Solomon wanted to teach. He wanted to pass on what God had instructed him in, and he, he's not just wanting to teach information. He's not just driven to teach the Pythagorean theorem and the, and the periodic table. Solomon is wanting to impart knowledge. Okay, that's the whole point of this book. Solomon is trying to help us live God's way in God's world. Okay, that, that's the drive here. Solomon has the heart of a teacher. He wants to help us avoid the regrets he had. He wants us us to avoid the shipwreck he had for so many years of his life. So he's driven to teach. So he's writing this with a a pastoral heart. That's the why of Ecclesiastes. And then in the last part of verse 9, we get the the how. So how did he put all this together? He says in the last half of verse 9... Yes, he, he's speaking of himself, three phrases. He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. You see those three phrases, words? They're defining how Solomon puts Ecclesiastes together. First, Solomon said that he pondered. That means he put some deep thought into this. Solomon spent some time thinking what he could write about that would be the most useful. And then secondly, he said he sought out. That means once he figured out what would be most useful, he dug down deep into it. He was thorough in his study. And if you've been here through this study of Ecclesiastes, you've experienced this. Solomon is not content splashing around in the shallow end of the pool. Ecclesiastes is not a superficial book. He is writing this book to make us think deeply. He's writing this book to make us ask the hard questions. So he thought about it, then he dug into it, and then finally... The third phrase he uses is, he set in order many proverbs. That means once he figured out what he wanted to say, he then figured out the best way to arrange all of it. There's a method to his madness. Ecclesiastes is not just some, some sort of stream of consciousness book. Solomon is very intentional in how he writes this. He's very intentional in how he lays it out. He is writing for maximum impact. That's verse 9. And then look at verse 10. He continues, The preacher sought to find acceptable words. Or your translation might word. He sought to find delightful words. So he's given us another note about how Ecclesiastes was written. So once Solomon knew what he wanted to write and how he was going to arrange it, he then wanted to communicate it in the most winsome way possible. So Solomon's writing this not just regurgitating information. There is an artistic beauty to the book of Ecclesiastes. These aren't just insightful words. These are also beautiful words. He's trying to write in a way that has an artistic beauty to it. And that is certainly the case. Just think of some of the phrases from Ecclesiastes that have stuck around for 3,000 years. Solomon doesn't just say, hey, you really need other people around you because if you get in trouble, you need the help of community. He doesn't say that. Instead, Solomon says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Do you see the artistic flavor to that? Solomon doesn't say, hey, you have a spirit and God is spirit, so you need a relationship with God. No, Solomon says, God has set eternity in your heart. Solomon doesn't just say, hey, God's in control and he has a plan and he's working everything together. No, Solomon says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. So he's trying to say the very best things in the very best way, the the most impactful, memorable way. And that's why so many authors since the time of Solomon have continued to quote Ecclesiastes. You read the lines from Ecclesiastes in the writings of Hemingway and Tolstoy and Melville. It's because Solomon writes in such a, a memorable, beautiful way. And that's what he was saying that he was trying to do. But, this is important, but, Solomon wasn't willing to sacrifice truth on the altar of beauty. You can be so driven to write something that's beautiful and memorable that you don't commit yourself to writing things that are truthful. And so the last phrase of verse 10, Solomon says, And what was written was upright. Words of truth. That's important. Because if this book was just filled with beautiful poems, but they weren't true, it wouldn't do us any good. But Solomon is committed to telling us the truth. I mean, that's one of the things about Ecclesiastes, is Solomon just kind of smacks you in the face with what's real in life. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He, he's driven in this book to tell it like it is. And so you pull all this together, and what you get in Ecclesiastes is this wonderful combination of intellectual rigor and artistic beauty and pointed truth all rolled into one. Thomas Wolfe was a a novelist in the early 1900s. He died in his 30s, but he's viewed by many as the most talented American novelist of that era. And here's what Thomas Wolfe wrote about the book of Ecclesiastes. It sums up well, I think, what Solomon was trying to accomplish. Thomas Wolfe wrote, Of all that I have ever seen or learned, that book, talking about Ecclesiastes, that book seems to be the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth. And also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I'm not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I've ever known. And the wisdom expressed in it is the most lasting and profound. Well, that's what Solomon was shooting for. That's what he's saying in verses 9 and 10. It is true. It is beautiful. It is memorable. Number two. Second thing we see here is the power of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 11 now. Solomon says, The words of the wise, and the words he's talking about here in particular are the words of this book, The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So again, he's describing what Ecclesiastes is. That's the words of the wise. What effect did Solomon hope that Ecclesiastes would have on us? He He uses two metaphors. First, Solomon says that these words should be like goads. What's a goad? A goat is a, a long stick that would have a sharp, pointy end on it. And what would you use a goad for? You would use a goat to steer livestock. If you had an ox that was stubborn and had decided he didn't want to move anymore, you would use that goad to get that ox moving. If you had a, a hard-headed sheep who was determined he was going to go this way, even though you wanted him to go that way, you would use the goad to jab into the side of that sheep to get that sheep to turn in the right direction. And Solomon is saying that's the way God's word is intended to be used. So so goads would inflict temporary pain, but they were designed for the animal's long-term good. Goads would hurt for a second, but they were designed to keep the animal from harm. And Solomon is saying that's what these words are intended to do. These words, uh, I guess you could say it this way, God God often uses Scripture as a sort of holy cattle prod. God uses Scripture in our lives because there are so many times that our thinking is off track. There are so many times when we're determined we're going to live one way and God calls us to live another way. Or there are times in my life when I, like a stubborn ox, kind of dig my heels in and I'm not going to take another step. And God comes along with the power of His Word and goads us. He turns us when we need to be corrected. He prods us along when we need to start moving. Have you ever felt the the sting of being poked by the goat of God's Word? Where you were thinking in one direction and it's not the right direction and God through His Word comes along and corrects you? Or you're going in one direction in your life and mercifully God comes along through Scripture and jabs you in the side and gets you turned in the right direction? It's the same thing that Paul has in mind in 2 Timothy 3. You're familiar with these verses. Listen to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul writes, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Did you notice all the ways Paul says that God's Word is profitable? It gives us doctrine. That means it shows us what we should believe. It instructs us along the path of righteousness. But what were those middle two words that he uses? Paul says that God's Word reproves and corrects. So when we're believing wrong things or living in a wrong way, God convicts us and corrects us through His Word. And that is a good gift from God. As we've studied Ecclesiastes, if there have been times where you have felt the prick of God's holy word pinching against your life, you should thank God for that. You should thank God that God does not allow his sheep to wander without giving correction. That's how he uses it. In one hand, he uses his word as a goad. But Solomon doesn't just see God's word that way. What's the other way he describes it? He also describes these words as well-driven nails. But think about the contrast he's setting up. Goads get you moving in the right direction. What do nails do? Nails hold things in place. You, You nail things down that need to be secured, right? Well, Solomon's saying not only does God's Word turn us and not only does God's Word propel us and not only does God's Word motivate us, God's Word is also what hammers truth down into our lives. God's Word is what hammers things into our lives that give us stability. Maybe a good way to think of it would be like, think of going camping where you're setting a tent up. And so you get the poles all put together and run through the loops on the tent and you get your tarp laid down and you stand the tent up and everything's ready to go, but there's still one step you better not forget. You better get the stakes out and you better drive those stakes into the ground because if you set, set a tent up that you don't stake down, what's going to happen? If the wind comes along, that tent is liable to end up three counties away if you don't stake it down. Well, it's like Ecclesiastes. Solomon is saying to us, these words are how God drives His stakes into our lives. Listen, we're in a world that, that is driven every direction by the wind. I don't know if you've noticed this, but our world's definition of right and wrong seems to change about every 28 seconds. Its definition of morality is constantly in flux, but it is God's Word that drives in the nails, that give us an anchor that defines who we are and who God is and what life is and what morality is. So these words are like goads, these words are like well-driven nails. Okay, but back up for a second. Isn't it kind of arrogant of Solomon to say this? Because he's describing his own writing. I mean, isn't this arrogant of Solomon to say, this is the power of the words that I'm writing to you? Well, did you notice at the end of that verse where Solomon says these words actually come from? He says at the end of verse 10 that these words are given by one shepherd. Now, who's the shepherd Solomon's talking about here? Throughout the Old Testament, the shepherd of Israel is God. You remember it was Solomon's father in Psalm 23 who said, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. So when Solomon says these words are given by our shepherd, it is a claim to inspiration. Solomon's saying that that these words weren't invented by him. These words were given by God. So these these verses in Ecclesiastes 12 are the Old Testament counterpart to what we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul starts it saying, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? Meaning that all of Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, humans were used. There were human authors, around 40 of them, who penned the words of Scripture, but God was at work in that process. So that those men wrote exactly what God intended for us to have. Which means, when when we open our Bibles and read it, we hear the voice of our shepherd. That's why it's been wisely said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. This is how God speaks to His people. That's why we can sit here in a church service reading these words 3,000 years later. We're 3,000 years after Solomon wrote this, and yet we still today feel the prick of the goats. We still today 3,000 years get nails driven by God's truth into our heart. That's because these are the words given to us by our timeless shepherd. So when we read these words, we hear the voice of the shepherd. Solomon continues in verse 12. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Now, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes to help people in general. So he's, he's writing for a wide audience, but it's like as Solomon writes this, he can't help but his mind going to his own son. He's talking about these big issues in life and how easy it is to waste your life if you live disconnected from God. And as Solomon is writing this, it's like he keeps thinking of his own kids. And his son comes to his mind. Man, I don't know if you've experienced this studying through Ecclesiastes, but I have found myself a dozen times in my studies reading through passages in this book and my mind going to my own kids. Right? You read chapter 11 and 12 where Solomon says... Rejoice, O oh young man, in your youth. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And like Solomon, if you're a parent, your heart wants to jump out of your chest, right? You want to say to your own kids, remember your Creator now. Don't neglect your Creator now. If you forget your Creator now, you'll end up wrecked like Solomon ended up wrecked. So Solomon's heart, his mind is driven toward his own son here. He wanted his son to learn from these words above every other book. I don't have to tell you, there are plenty of books out there. They say that every year there are around one million new books published in the U.S. alone. On top of that, there are countless substacks and magazines and newspapers So you could spend 16 hours a day, every day reading and never be able to keep up with all of it. That's why Solomon says in that verse, there is no end to it. There's all kinds of different books and materials and his point isn't that none of it's valuable. There are lots of books out there that are helpful. We, in fact, do a church book club because we think there are things that are helpful for us to read. But Solomon's point is that all those other books are infinitely less valuable than this book because these alone are the words of our shepherd. So so this book is different from every other book. You can wear yourself out trying to read all the hot takes and all the self-helps and all the different philosophies and you can spend so much time reading that that you never get around to reading the one thing that matters most. And so Solomon is urging his son that in the middle of all of his reading and all of his studying, that he not neglect the one that matters most. Make sure scripture serves as the meat and potatoes of your diet. Make sure you don't neglect this and all of your other studies. This is how we hear the voice of God. So Solomon is urging his son toward this. Make Make these words the filter through which you read all other words. Make these words the filter through which you listen to every other philosophy. That's the power of this book. And that leads to the third point. Number three, he gives us a summary of Ecclesiastes. He gives us a summary. Look at verse 13. Solomon says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. you see what Solomon's doing? He is summarizing everything we've heard over the last 12 chapters. He is distilling it down into two commands. So if there are two commands you want to walk away from Ecclesiastes with, here they are. What's the first one? Fear God. Now, that's a command that most people in our world, and I would even say, most people in the evangelical world aren't quite sure how to process. Fear God? Why in the world would we fear God? Because the the modern concept of God, or I'll I'll approach it this way, what, what seems to have happened is that people have taken this wonderful biblical truth about God, that God is love And that has been twisted to mean God is only love. So people have taken this great truth of what a loving God we have, but that truth has become the eraser that's used to mark out anything about God that we're not comfortable with. So any concept of God's justice, any concept of God's righteousness, any concept of God's sovereignty any concept of God's wrath is swept away by this all-encompassing one attribute that's highlighted, God is love. God is love. God is gloriously love, but God is not only love. But our world has taken God as love and twisted it to mean God is only love, and then we have redefined love to mean tolerance. And so the highest attribute held up about God is God is love, meaning God is all-tolerant. In fact, you know how there are certain omni words that are used to sum up the attributes of God? God is omnipotent. That means God is all powerful. God is omniscient. That means God is all knowing. Well, it's like our culture has added a new omni word God is omnitolerant. God tolerates everything. God would never judge anyone. God is like your spiritual granddad. He's there to pat you on the head and tell you how proud of you he is and hand out blessings like candy. That's who God is. If that's your concept of God, the the idea of the Bible that you should fear God will make no sense at all. You'll come across passages in the Bible like the psalmist saying, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. And you'll think, what? Why would we stand in stunned silence before our spiritual granddad? Or you'll read Jesus saying in the Gospels, don't fear those who can kill your body, you fear the one who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. In other words, don't fear man, fear God. But if, if your concept of God is this broken concept that has been embraced by our world, that won't make any sense at all. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means that we recognize the supremacy of God over all of life. We stand in awe of God. We hold God in the highest regard. We give God the highest honor. We reverence Him and worship Him And we align our lives according to Him. Maybe here's a helpful way to think about it. You know, centuries ago, the dominant view was that the earth was at the center of our solar system. And everything else just orbited around the earth. The sun, for instance, orbited around the earth. That was what a lot of people believed. And of course, that was the exact opposite of how it actually works, right? The the earth doesn't orbit around the sun, the sun orbits around the earth. It's not the earth that's at the center of everything, it's the sun that's at the center of everything. That's called the Copernican revolution. It's recognizing that it's not the sun, it's not the earth that's the center, it's the sun that's the center. Well, that's a good way to think about the fear of God. Because you and I come into this world thinking we're the center. Everything should revolve around me. Life is all about my fulfillment and life is about follow your heart and do what makes you happy and We even think God orbits around us. God's just there to answer my prayers and God's just there to help me fulfill my purpose and God's just there to remind me of how valuable I am. But spiritually speaking, the Copernican revolution happens when you realize you're not the center, God is. God does not exist for you, you exist for God. You're not the center, He is. You and everything in this universe finds its proper orbit around God. He's the greatest being. He's the highest good. He's the deepest joy. So Solomon is urging us to fear God. It means that God has the primary place in your life. God carries the greatest weight in your life. And that leads to the second part of that commandment. Fear God and keep His commandments. And the order of that is important. If you don't fear God, you will not obey God. And we recognize this. In fact, we see this lived out all the time. Let's say that after the service today, you and your family go to Olive Garden for lunch. And so you get seated at a table, and about 10 minutes later, a family of three comes in. It's a mom and a dad and a little four-year-old boy who for the next 45 minutes, he terrorizes the entire restaurant. He climbs over the back of every booth and he crawls under every table and he does the exact opposite of whatever mom and dad tell him to do. If they tell him to lower his voice, he gets louder. If they tell him to sit down, he just determines he's going to stand up. Well, as you watch that, you realize that the problem isn't the boy's behavior. The problem is there's no respect for mom and dad, right? So for his behavior to change, the first thing that has to happen is his heart. His attitude has to change. We recognize that that order is important. Well, that's the same point that Solomon's making here. I will never be driven. Listen, I will never be driven to obey God in my behavior if I do not first fear God in my heart. So Solomon is calling us to fear God and keep His commandments so that obedience is the fruit of having a right attitude toward God. And not only is it the fruit, it is the inevitable fruit. So I'll connect it this way. So if you're wondering, how do I know? I mean, there's all this emphasis in Ecclesiastes on fearing God. How do I know if I really fear God? Here's the answer. Is your heart geared toward obeying God? Where the fear of God is present in a heart, a hunger to obey God will be present in a life. And we could stretch that into everything. Does that that play into your weekends? The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine. The Bible says, flee sexual immorality. Do you fear God? Does it come into play in what you do on your Sundays? The Bible says don't forsake meeting together with God's people. And when you get together with God's people, spur one another on toward love and good works. Do you fear God? Does it affect how you speak? The ninth commandment says don't lie. There's to be an honesty that flavors all of our speech. And we could keep going in a dozen different directions with all of this, right? The fear of God always and inevitably shows up And a drive, a hunger, a yearning, a practice of obeying God. And look at the end of verse 13. How significant is this? Solomon says, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. Now remember what Ecclesiastes has been about. Ecclesiastes has been about why are we here? What's the point of all this? What can I do with my life that matters? And here's Solomon's answer when he says this is man's all he means this is the essence of what we were created for this is why you and I are here you were made for God you were made to see God you were made to know God you were made to worship God you were made to obey God and you'll struggle to find any real purpose any real meaning in your life until you come to terms with that and then Solomon ends it with one last jolt verse 14 For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon is saying God doesn't just tell us who we are. He doesn't just tell us why we're here. He doesn't just tell us how we're expected to live. God also holds us accountable for how we live. In fact, the emphasis there is on that word every. Every work will be brought into judgment as if nothing slips God's attention. Not even the things that we think are done in secret. God sees it all. God knows it all. God holds us accountable for it all. It's like the moment I was born, God hit the record button and He doesn't hit the stop button until the day that I die and then it's all replayed. And on that day, I will give an account of my life to God. Now on one hand that that's meant to jar us I think. It's meant to strike a sense of fear into my life that I'm gonna give an account for how I live even the secret things to God but it's also meant to invigorate us because think of what Solomon's been saying in this letter. He's been saying if all there is is this under the sun life nothing matters. There's no meaning to any of it because if there's no God, your life is just like footprints on the shoreline. As soon as you die, the next wave comes in and everything's washed away. So if there's no God, nothing you do matters. But you see how he's reversing that now? Since there is a God, that means everything matters. Since there is a God who sees and knows and created and will hold us accountable that means every single thing you and I do in our lives matters to God. The, the secret work that you do in your own home when no one is watching, trying to disciple your kids when you're exhausted, it matters. The, the work that you do, how you respond to your boss and how you treat your coworkers, it matters. Extending forgiveness, when you don't feel like extending forgiveness, God sees it and it matters. So Solomon is saying, what you do today will matter on that day. But let's be honest as I get ready to close. The thought of standing before God and giving an answer for absolutely everything I've ever done is terrifying. Because the fact of the matter is that I've done a lot of things in my life that I regret. So Solomon tells us here to fear God but there have been lots of times in my life where I've completely ignored God. Solomon tells us that we're called to obey God, but there have been swaths of my life where I have willfully disobeyed God. So if I'm going to give an account to God one day for all of that, there's only one way that could possibly end, and that's judgment, condemnation, hell. what, What defense could I possibly give? The way Paul says it in Romans 3, is that when the day of judgment comes and we stand before God, the evidence against us will be so overwhelming that every mouth will be stopped. What, what could I say when I stand before God? What defense could I possibly give? So it's like you and I will be left on our own, standing before God as the, the verdict guilty rings out from God's throne. But the good news of the Bible is, You don't have to stand there that day on your own. There's one who will stand in your place. There's one who will represent you on that day. There's one who will plead your case on that day. Listen to the way John says it. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is the best news in the world. If you'll give your life in faith to Jesus, He'll be your advocate on that day. That means if you'll turn in Jesus in faith, He'll stand in your place. He'll represent you before the divine bar of judgment And he can do that because John says he's the righteous one. There are no charges against him. There's no sin that can be pinned to him. And even more, John says he is the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the sacrifice that stood in our place. He went to the cross to take the judgment that I deserve for not fearing God and keeping his commandments. He went to the cross to take the wrath that should fall on me for my disobedience against God so that for everyone who is found in Jesus by faith, for everyone whose trust is in Jesus, we're found not guilty. We're represented by Christ and our account is wiped clean. Do you remember how Solomon said earlier that these words are the words of our shepherd? We're to listen to the words of our shepherd. I would just close by reminding you Yes, our shepherd speaks to us, but that's not all our shepherd does for us. Think of Jesus in John chapter 10 where he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. And that's so important. We have a shepherd who not only speaks to us, we have a shepherd who died for us. And that's why when those seasons of our life where we have not feared, where we have not obeyed, and we have periods every day where that Defines us. We have a shepherd who represents us. So I would just close Ecclesiastes, I guess, with two challenges to you. The first one would be to hear the words of your shepherd. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Is that is that your heartbeat? And is that what dominates your life? I, I want to fear God. I want to obey God. Is that the drumbeat in your soul that defines who you are and that defines your life? Well, Solomon says that is your, that's the essence of what God made you for. So hear the voice of your shepherd, but, but even more than that, trust in the work done for you by your shepherd. Thank God that we have a shepherd who went to a cross to take the penalty in our place. Make sure you're not trusting in your obedience. Make sure you're not trusting in having the perfect attitude and perfect record. We're trusting in a Savior who had the perfect record for us and who took the penalty that we deserve. Look to Him in faith. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.